Hello and welcome to another episode of Satya Sambhad. Good evening. I am your host Satya Chakrapani. What is uh, bhakti and how to live in our day-to-day life, which we call workplaces? Every day we walk, we live, and we spend time in our own arenas, in our own akharas, where we are to live, demonstrate, and live the life that we trust in in God. Today, to discuss all of these, we have wonderful people with us who have experienced, who are, who are living and have been living all through their lives, considering every place where they are is a place live as Bhaktav, Muktinath, the Yeshua. Join, joining us in this conversation today, we have one Mr. Rao Sahab. Uh, by profession, he's a chemist works for the, as a senior executive in one of the well-known multinational companies based out of Bangalore with his wife and two daughters. He'll be sharing his experience on these areas. We have, from far away f- uh, from us today, Sri Rajan Mathewji, who, who, who lived in India, who is a trained theologian. He did his MD from Gordon Conwell Theological College Seminary. And then he went into a management studies and, uh, and accountancy and went on to lead uh, farmers, uh, well-known telecom companies like AT&T's, not only in India, Asia, but other parts of the country, the uh, world. For the last 10 years, he had provided leadership and guidance to telecom industry in India as a director general of Cellular Operators Association of India. Until July, he was as a director general of that Post that he moved back to US with his wife Grace and daughters Kavita and Nevita and Jeffy, her husband. They live in Princeton and he's joining us from there. Welcome, uh, Rajasab, in our midst. And well, of course, many of you are waiting. We have, you have uh, come to hear uh, uh, Uncle LT. We all call him Uncle, but yes, many of you may not know his full name. Uh, so for your sake, I just want to uh, read his full name. He is Lawrence Theodore J. Chandran. We all know him as LT. He is joining us from uh, Pune and uh, he has worked uh, some two decades plus in Indian government as senior executive, led his life there. And of course, he has been part of many people's life who are enjoying, cherishing and uh, living life happily in the places where they they are. He has got daughter and son, and he uh, has got four grandchildren. So thank you, Uncle LT, joining us uh, from Pune. So um, as the subject says, sir, that we, 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 are, we are talking today the bhakti in the arena. And it's pretty oxymoron when we talk the bhakti and the battle. But there, is, there are evidence that there are a lot of these bhakts always consider them in the part of arena. I'll give you just one minute to each one of you to suggest about your in life that how you have experienced and what is arena for you today. So starting with Mr. Rao. Okay, thank you. Uh, uh, thanks for Satya and team put together and uh, also privileged to be with Raj and LD uncle uh, on this panel. And uh, well, uh, the question Satya is what is bhakti to, to me? What does it mean? And what is arena? Am I sorry for that? Is that? That's right. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, I define it, uh, we've got an opportunity to reflect on this one, ref, ref, uh, define it more positively and negatively. Uh, positively for me, Bhakti is, uh, as a Hindu, uh, you know, uh, accepting Muktinath as, as my guru and being his disciple. I mean, that's a positive, uh, uh, what Bhakti means, and it's a spiritual identity that Muktinath gives, you know, to all his disciples, you know, past, current, and future, wherever you are, you may be Hindu, Hindu Christian, or, or whatever denomination, or uh, whatever culture you come from, it's an identity that he gives to all his followers. Negatively, uh, Bhakti for me is not about leaving the Hindu community that I'm born into and uh, joining a Christian community or any other community. So it's staying within my community and uh, not giving up the sociocultural identity that, that, I, that I have, uh, which is given naturally to me. Because uh, as I see Bhakti, Muktinath does not ask or demand such a sacrifice or you know, giving up my sociocultural identity. Uh, Bhakti is also not a private one for me. Maybe we'll touch upon it later as we go. Arena, uh, well, unfortunately, as, as uh, Satya said, it shouldn't be an, a, a battleground. But in my life, my own experience, it had been a battleground for the first decade of my life, where I had to battle, you know, being in the church and uh, and then dealing with the family and so on. So it was a battleground, and which uh, a lot of regrets on that. Uh, last two decades has been a different type of a battle. Uh, you know, where I came out of, uh, you know, uh, the church living as a Hindu in the community. So definitely, yes, it is a, a battle and which I think even Mukti Veda, you know, talks about it. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, you, you said two things. That's, one is that the positive and negative, that how positively uh, the Muktinath has given the spiritual identity. And uh, the, the other side, you said, it's not a private, and that's, that's, uh, that's true. It's not a private, it's a bhakti is always in the public. The bhakti always has been part of the social change or political change that happened in the history. Keeping that stats learning, uh, let me go to uh, Mr. Rajan. Uh, Mr. Rajan, uh, how would you define these two, uh, 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 these bhakti, and what is arena for you now at this age? Uh, so, first of all, uh, Satya, thank you for this privilege. And again, uh, to be on a panel with uh, Madhu and uh, LT is a humbling experience. We refer to LT uh, as the legend of our time. So, uh, LT is for us uh, uh, a pioneer in the faith and one who was led and uh, by example, uh, talking about the arena. But uh, to me, when we talk about bhakti uh, and you look at the roots of that within our ancient culture, it's the sense of deep devotion and love that comes in terms of a personal dimension with God. And I think that to me is is this whole core uh, when we look at this and starting with a God who so loved that uh, he does not hesitate to himself come into the arena and be part of our lives. It's not a God who sits up there and kind of leaves you to your own devices but who so captivates us because of this love that he shows, which is uh, not something that uh, we can fully comprehend, but we are invited day by day to begin to experience that in all of the dimensions of our life. And I think one of the things that has very uh, been installed, if you will, in my mind is, uh, you know, that our God comes to us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and as he claims to give us life and that more fully. And uh, so to me, when you experience the love dimensions of this great God, 
you really begin to start experiencing life in all of its fullness because what happens in our daily life is that we make so many idols and we enter into a form of practical idolatry that we think that achievement of all of these things, be it title, be it position, be it riches, be it wealth, be it acknowledged, that these seem to be the things that so enamor us. And so God is asking us to replace these quote-unquote idols that become also natural in our lives in the arena and replace them with the sense of a deep devotion to him who to know ultimately is to understand what life's all about. And I think that has become for me a critical factor of my understanding. I've uh, you know, you know, in terms of God's calling on my life, as I understand it, was to be in quote unquote the secular world, uh, because again, I think there was a need for many of us who profess the name of our Lord to practice our belief systems, our ethics, our values, our deep love for the Lord in arenas where normally one does not find an adequate expression of that. People tend to dichotomize life, you know, we'll go to our churches or our temples or whatever, but the rest of the six days seems to be lived outside of those uh, uh, driving uh, issues, which ought to be put together. And so one of the things that uh, I've tried to emulate in times of our, in the life of our Lord is what I call authenticity. And no diversion between what one calls the private and the public or the spiritual and the secular. And those divisiveness or those artificial barriers need to be broken down and put together in terms of a wholesome approach to life, which portrays the fact that we are image bearers. Uncle LT, uh, come coming to you to see uh, what is, how do you see Bhakti and what is your arena? I mean, you, you, have, you have been in different places. So how do you define those places? What are your arena? What are these atharas? Or where are you now? Now, I, I want to pick up uh, one from Mr., what Mr. Rao said and the second point, uh, what Mr. Rajan said. Uh, from uh, Mr. Rao's side, I want to say that for many years, I've been praying for our country. And the basis of my prayer was from Muktived Bible, Revelation 21, from verse 22 onwards, uh, where it says that all the ethnic groups in God's creation will be brought to the worship of the true God. I did not quite realize what it means to live as a follower of uh, Jesus in India. But only after meeting some of you people, I began to realize that in verse 22, it says there will be no Jewish temple, no Girijagar, no Masjid, no Mandir. But what will happen is that every uh, ethnic group will bring its wonderful devotion to the feet of the true God. And so I came to the conclusion, this was a kind of a mental arena, where I came to the conclusion that the object of bhakti sanctifies the method by which bhakti is offered. Whereas we people from the conventional church, we had absolutized the method of worship and have kind of sidelined the object of worship. So that is my first point. The second point is from Mr. Rajan Matthew, and I'll give it in, the, uh, in terms of a personal episode. 1987 was Calcutta's 300th birthday. I happened to be posted there as superintendent engineer looking after postal buildings in uh, Calcutta and in the nearby states. And uh, so what we had done, we gave a facelift 
to the general post office building, which is a great piece of architecture. And my electrical colleagues floodlit it. And uh, one of those evenings, I was traveling by taxi from my quarters in Alipur to catch a train in Howrah. From a distance, I saw this beautiful building and instinctively I said, Lord, I offer this building to you in worship. And the moment that thought crossed my mind, I realized the absurdity of my thought because I did not own a square inch of this post office building. But God seemed to be telling me, I am the God of creation. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. The, the earth is mine and everything in it. So you did exactly the right thing. And so, uh, right as Mr. Rajan Matthew said, I would like to break down this artificial partition between the secular and the sacred and read Muktived Bible, not as a religious book, but as a reality book, because it deals with all of reality. And my problem in my uh, smattering of theology is that our theology begins with Genesis 3 and ends with Revelation 20, begins with human rebellion against God and ends with a lake of fire. And once you leave out the first two and the last two chapters of the Bible, the creativity of the human race, the fact that we are made in the image of God, as Mr. Rajan Matthew said, is completely lost on us. And so we are unable to see uh, the culmination of God's creation in Revelation 21, 22, where every part of God's creation will be represented. And so that is, uh, that is my journey. Uh, over to you, Satya. Uh, let me come back to Mr. Rao. Uh, you mentioned, Mr. Rao, that the bhakti is not a private matter. It's not a private affair. It's a public uh, uh, or a community. How would you define that? How would you like us to understand that? Mr. Rao, over to you. Thanks, Satya, for the question. Uh, well, when I said it is uh, not uh, private, uh, of course, it cannot be lost on us that definitely Muktinath calls for a transformation, a transformed life. So it is, uh, it is something which we all, you know, have experienced. Uh, it's a visible trans transformation inside out. You know, it's not an external uh, makeover, uh, but it's a transformation. But then when it comes to saying, why, why is it not private uh, then? Actually talking about, you know, the importance of a spiritual community in nurturing uh, one's bhakti, as a disciple of Muktinath, you know, and that's the kind of a model or a pattern that he calls us to. Uh, I've, I've uh, you know, touched upon in my uh, previous, uh, uh, you know, uh, answer to them what, what bhakti, you know, means to me. Now, in terms of what does uh, uh, it mean for family and community is, uh, I talk about a spiritual community, which is a community of bhaktas, but then there is also a family and community, you know, social cultural. So what uh, the way I live is as a bhakta within the family and community that Bhagavan has placed us, you know, something like what you see in Acts 4.12, you know, this is the natural uh, geographies in which Bhagavan times that he has placed us. And uh, so in my life, the two kind of I can split into two phases uh, in the first decade, more focus, you know, the family and the community were seeing uh, me as uh, not this transformation that they were seeing, but more about attitudes and behaviors that brought a lot of shame to them, you know, and uh, uh, maybe we'll have time to talk about that, you know, because I was visibly associated with with with, uh, with organized Christianity in India, 
but then i think uh, that that's the wrong focus i think what the family community should see is uh, transform life and uh, you know that is what they need to be seeing and which everyone would definitely appreciate but but there's so much of uh, rupture that that you know uh, otherwise you know, it causes to hindu families when they talk about following muktinath you know which which kind of breaks or ruptures the sensitive fabric of family unity so that that is something that that should be avoided and uh, that's how one i think lives uh, in the family and community uh i mean when you say uh, how how do i live uh, i mean i think our bhakti muktinath you know directs uh, you know and alters our life in all respects you know it is uh, it is not just one time it's not a spiritual only and uh, as i said it is a, it's a transformation inside out and uh, the challenges that uh, that uh, faces that the muktinath followers face are clearly seen and also predicted in the mukti veda when i say mukti veda uh, well uh, christians call it the bible but i prefer to call uh, that uh, scripture as mukti veda as a hindu and uh, and it's no different for a bhakta outside whether you live outside the uh, you know christianity church or hindu or or, or the muslim world or whatever you know the challenges are uh, are there and we see read in the mukti veda all those uh, challenges uh, that that followers face so no one is immune from that and uh, what is critical really i see is in this is the spiritual moral support given by the community of bhaktas and we see that again in in the book of acts and other uh, portions of 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 the of the mukti veda and uh, i think uh, uh, for me i think also i would say that my bhakti and my interest uh, helped me to even delve into the hindu traditions and and uh, discover the history of uh, the indian bhakti and spirituality in this great land of ours you know the explosion of bhakti that some of you talked about you know happened in the 16th century with with nana kabir and uh, mirabai and uh, surdas Uh, these are like amazing uh, you know spirituality and, and bhakti in india and uh, yeah unfortunately we don't spend time on those uh, aspects of it yeah mr rajan how you have uh, lived as as a bhakt of muktinath christ you know i just want to pick up uh, a thing that both madhu and lg um, highlighted and it has been a kind of a personal burden of mine as well which is uh, why are we as uh, quote unquote believers in our lord uh continues to be seen as a western foreign influence in our culture right and uh, again you look at the history of the church um uh, you know a palestinian movement right becomes a western idea and an influence in the west right so today when you come to uh, europe and america nobody thinks of christianity as a palestinian entity whereas that's where it started and got much of its formative ideas from when our lord was there uh, unfortunately when we look eastward you know we still have this western uh, patina that seems to be glossed over in our uh, experience and i think that is one of the things in talking about the arena that i dwell with right uh, bringing it into the arena of the world which is what i would call our business world uh, to begin to say that look within our culture in india we must begin to start asking what is it that we know about our indigenous way of doing business so there are good things and bad things uh, and we must begin to infuse that with what we call the two great commandments of our god which is love the lord your god with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength which is really in my mind the essence of bhakti and bhakti right and then infuse that with love of neighbor uh, because our lord says all of the law and the commandments are really distilled in these two 
love of God and love of neighbor. And uh, the Apostle Paul uh, in Galatians, you know, uh, says that the first part is so well known that he focuses on love of neighbor. And I think this aspect of the divisiveness that I see so much emerging in our world needs to be reconciled. As our Lord said, reconciliation is between heaven and earth is what he was about. And that is one aspect that we have to focus on in this fractured and broken world and which we try to bring in in this uh, oneness of approach. How to bring this, uh, the bhakti in a public life, where the reconciliation, as Mr. Rajan said, what is the purpose of all of that we are sitting and talking and being becomes a, a, a reconciliation where the bleeding stops. Satya, at this stage of my life, I have become quite famous for deliberately saying controversial things and inviting fire upon myself. I want to tell you that the onus of reconciliation rests upon the conventional church people in order to reach out to Mandali people, because we are the ones who did not understand salvation as comprising everything, as Mr. Rajan rightly pointed out. Colossians 1, 19 and 20, God is reconciling all things. Let me put it this way from a theological point of view. We have a strong theology of redemption, but a weak theology of creation. That is why I said we begin with Genesis 3 and end with Revelation 20. Now, culture, like Mr. Rao's culture, is uh, results from an interplay of human creativity on God's creation. Now, because of our rebellion, all cultures are fallen. And if we really begin to see the magnitude of Muktinath Ishwa's uh, sacrifice, that means all cultures have to be part of the new creation. If only we people began to do theology in that way, we would be much better placed in healing this rift. Secondly, because of this kind of uh, separation, we have reduced the good news of Yeshua to simply saving our souls. That is the first step. We have made that the only step. Whereas from that step, we are going to see the rule of God. As uh, Yeshua told Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot even see the rule of God. So that is the first step. We have made that the only step. And that is our biggest problem. Many years ago, before we moved to live in Pune, on one of my visits here, and uh, uh, Shantan is asking a question, Muktinath Muktived, majority community need not uh, accept it. Uh, let us continue to use the word Bible and Jesus. That's okay. Uh, God knows all languages, so he can uh, understand. Uh, I, I want to say this. The truth of the God the, in the Bible on the first two and the last two chapters. And once you read that, what we call the good news of Jesus is totally unconnected, disconnected. And that is my understanding. Uh, Uncle, uh, uh, as what Dr. Shantanu asked this question, and I think that question, uh, you, you said the first part very well. But the second part is question has a, a little more provocation. He says, is it seen as a mimicry of established vocabulary and established text? Okay. Now, the, you, you, you brought that, how uh, your, your address to this group was. But when we use the term today, uh, 
whether uh, uh, Bhagwan, uh, Mukti Ved, uh, or uh, uh, the vocabulary of Bhakti rather than uh, how do you see that the language? Because I think that for a lot of people, the language itself is a problem in when they express their uh, their allegiance, their devotion. If you don't speak in a particular way, it's not. If you don't dis- uh, play a particular musical instrument, also it's not. If you don't speak in a particular, uh, uh, sit in a particular way, also become a problem for some. I mean, how to deal with it? Now, what is what is your? I mean, you you uh, how have you arrived uh, uh, reached to uh, this uh, con- conclusion, which you said to those uh, folks in Iranians, and then and what would you say today to us? Well, I'll tell Indians. you. Uh, I fully agree with what Dr. Shantanu has said. Uh, but let me tell you, uh, you know, uh, he talked about, but the, then the, our mainline churches are also just mimicking some, um, some words which have been used. I'm going to take a minute longer and yes. tell you something about theory of communication. When we were growing up from the state of being babies, we started learning a language by associating with objects. But when we become familiar with a language, the language begins to dictate the object, which is why it is very important to constantly go on revising our language. Otherwise, we lose sight of the object. The language itself becomes an idol. In fact, C.S. Lewis says, uh, language is a thin own image of God. So I think we need to relook at language. I'm not an expert on this, but what I'm beginning to say, why people fall into this trap of a language is because we are allowing the language to dictate the object to us instead of language describing the object, which is why we need to learn to use new words. And those words are not surely familiar with us, Mukti Ved, Bhagwan. We conventional Christians don't use words like that. But if you go to our village Christians, they call the church Mandali, so that is wonderful. Uh, And church we call always a building, but fortunately, these mandalis in our villages uh, meet in houses and huts. And in our country, as long as there is a ground, uh, there's an earth beneath on which you can kneel down and a heaven above towards which you can raise your hand, Muktinath, uh, Jesus is going to be worshipped, not only in India, but throughout the world. So that is the kind of a mental revolution we have to bring about. Uh, thank you. I think your uh, your uh, the uh, the example that from how do we learn the language by using the object? Yeah, maybe a quick uh, if you if you allow me a quick uh, yes, know, Mr. to the to, to the question is uh, so this whole rich bhakti vocabulary that is that is there in in uh, in the Hindu world and uh, for me when the way I see it, I don't know what is this majority minority community because uh, I don't I don't uh, know I know. Uh, you know the the socio cultural community that I belong to, and uh, so that actually for a bhakta of Muktina, this is natural birthright. Okay, I don't need permission from anyone, you know, even a Hindu for that matter, to say I can't use it because I am part of that uh, lineage, that tradition. So this is something that uh, you know our uh, uh, what do you call the bhakti movement has handed it over to us. So mimicry is done by people who are outsiders. So I am not an outsider. I'm an insider. I don't even call myself an insider because it looks like, you know, I have come by stealth. I, I am naturally born that I'm, I'm a son of the soil. As, as our, you know, Prime Minister Devagoda calls himself, you know, so ex-Prime Minister. So 
so it's a natural birth right so i don't need uh, permission or uh, you know or is it not it's not uh, seen as a mimicry i think uh, those those concerns are genuine but the way I, from my vantage point i'm not seeing it in that uh, light thank you thank you uh, mr rao for adding that's yes also this i think it's uh, the way the the division has happened the secular and the spiritual i think there's also i'm hearing nowadays outsider and insider and uh, I, i mean i don't know how many divisions will keep creating and i think we are pretty creative in creating divisions uh but yes you rightly said we have a very uh, rich vocabulary with the poetry which doesn't we don't need a permission to do that and nobody questions when we use that as satya uh, may say something here because it is responding to what mr rao mentioned uh in 1988 uh, two roman catholic nuns were dragged out of a convent and they were raped and killed and uh, we were in calcutta so we decided to close christian institutions and we take a march around the city and i wrote a telegra- letter to the telegraph newspaper mr mj akbar who was the editor who's now a member of the bjp and i wrote a first para about condemning the incident but in the second para i said if we who follow jesus had used this opportunity to protest atrocities on all women and not ask for particular protection only for christian women jesus said we are the salt of the earth salt is a minority in the food and does not suffer from a minority complex i borrowed it from mr lal krishna adwani and i sent it my letter impressed an rss colleague of mine so much ramesh lalwani he told me lt if this is what your christianity is all about we will not have too much of a problem with you and so this minority idea which has been foisted on us i don't think we need to really uh, look at it i mean in some cases uh, the majority are being oppressed in some cases the minority are also being oppressed so it's going on everywhere yeah thanks uh, thanks uncle from uh, this edition uh, i'll just go to state to mr uh, uh, rajan matthew and as you have traveled you have worked with uh, across the globe with a variety of colleagues and uh, how you see this uh, the bhakti of muktinath shaped your character which infected others and how they see you and how did you deal with this uh, with the variety that you traveled with people a variety of people variety of ideas variety of uh, world views uh, and yeah. how does that help i mean uh, that can help us in 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 dealing with us yeah uh thank you again satya again i just want to uh, pick up on something that both our brothers emphasize and you can't emphasize it uh strongly enough is the uh you know you don't need permission by the way that's precisely the point you know uh it's interesting that when moses is out in the desert and god calls him Uh, Moses wants to know hey when i go back to my people who shall i say sent me and uh, if you look at the vocabulary that is used right says i am who i am what do you you know say that's it i mean there is nothing more profound in terms of trying to understand what god is saying to moses 
for 500 or close to 400 plus years, you guys have been in an Egyptian environment, right? Learned their language, learned their culture, learned how they do things, idolatry included. And now you're asking, who shall I say who you are? And if you look at the history of, uh, you know, uh, Christianity, however you want to term it, right? It has always been a religion that has taken culture seriously. All right, you just look at uh, what has happened in terms of the development of the Old Testament, right? And then into the New Testament, all right? Why did we adopt, why did the church adopt Greek when Hebrew was the dominant language? Why did we go from Aramaic? Why is the Pentecostal experience, right? That which we call the birth date of the church, focus on language. And the fact that uh, all of these folks who are in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost says, are we not hearing these things in our own language? And these folks go back to their cultures and are assimilating, if you will, uh, in their own language, in their own culture, what they've heard in Jerusalem, right? So I think this is the focus and mentality we really need to bring. Now, coming to your second point, Satya, in terms of what do we do in terms of living in the arena? You know, uh, let me just give you a simple example. When I took over uh, again uh, as the head of uh, COEI, I was, uh, you know, kind of amused at one point to find that there is bathrooms for senior people and bathrooms for different people, right? Uh, senior people ate in one part of the cafeteria and everybody else did. Uh, you know, the pew who was in front had to carry your bag from your car to your office. And I used to look at some of these. These were things that little children could carry, but you wanted to show your, you know, the fact that you were a senior person. You didn't carry your own bag from your own car to your own office. And I said, this is nonsense. You know, so one of the simple things that we began to do is break down these barriers. And we say, listen, whether you're a pune in the front or whether you're a guard or whether you're in a senior position, right, we all treat one another. And we begin to start infusing the culture of the organization in which we are. So when we started, we said, look, there are four or five values that we practice in our organization. Respect for one another. All right. We will work with integrity. All right. We will look in terms of, uh, you know, sharing our expertise. You know, we will look out for one another. Some of those values, and it took a while, but after a while, it seeps into the organization. So we need to live this notion that we treat one another as brothers and sisters. Why? Because we're all created in God's image, as LT rightly pointed out. We miss that portion of scripture. And I think living that out has a profound impact in terms of our culture, where secular culture, because of it being infused with the value systems that we believe and again, it's not a foreign thing, right? It's what emerges and marrying that in the expressions of our culture is so important. And I think this is something that uh, certainly when I was in, uh, uh, you know, involved is bringing that wholesomeness and saying is that, look, these are things, the value of the person, the value of your culture, the value of your language the value of the expressions of our music. And again, this is one thing that uh, is such a burden. I, I was so happy when you started the session with uh, our own music, our own instrumentation, and our own expressions of uh, the expressions of our joy and our love. And I think that, again, I can't focus again in on the reconciling. We need to break down the cost. And I must confess, uh, and I come from an Orthodox background where you know we had our own caste system. Yeah, uh, And so we need to, within our own churches, break down this nonsense that is going on, right, that is accreted over centuries and come back to a proper understanding of what our Lord meant when he said, love one another as you love yourself, you know.
it's not a bad thing to have to understand uh, other cultures. I always say you can't uh, ask fish for the taste of water, right? So there is a sense of objectivity that comes from participating in other cultures. But we cannot forget the soil in which we were raised and which is the, you know, the nutrients that we have gained over time and then ask us to abandon that to adopt this, especially in something so core as our religion. And, and I use religion in terms of the spiritual dimensions of our faith. I'm saying is that you, so you create this dichotomy within people. And I, I must say, I confess that I grew up with much of this. I was, uh, you know, in a sense, uh, uh, you know, most of my, I studied in Bangalore in a Methodist school. And, and of course, it was very Western oriented in its philosophy and its worship and its theology and its uh, instrumentation. And it's, in, I know more of Western hymns than I do anything of, uh, of Indian, uh, you know, uh, devotional songs, right? And I think that is a difficulty that I still struggle with. And I think we have, as a church and as folks who uh, live out our faith, begin this thing is that there ought not to be this, uh, this divisiveness when somebody who comes to faith has to say, I have to uh, distance myself from my culture. I, that, that to me is such a, such a, a difficult and, and, and awesome uh, irresponsibility. And I say is that the church really in India and uh, even in, in other parts of the world has got to come to this uh, understanding. Uh, and again, this notion of superiority, and I see it often enough here in our culture in America, uh, where, you know, everything American seems to be dominant or for, if it's from the West, it must be better, it must be greater. And I'm saying hardly so. We must begin to start challenging, you know, aside from our own culture, some received doctrines that we have begun to import into the church and made it as if it was indigenous. And I think this is some part of some things that we have to begin to address and and deal with. Uh, Satya, back to you. Thank you, sir. I think uh, this uh, uh, you your uh, the opening statement was very good in this. Uh, that's we must start respecting and valuing our culture where we are. I think that's that's where it begins. Uh, I have uh, I think uh, Dr. Shantanu Dutta has posted a question which is. Uh, on the is still on the vocabulary that we are talking about is that the vocabulary is important in several contexts for instance in many countries christians are not allowed to use the word allah uncle lt uh, and uh, i also would actually suggest that you take the next question alongside it and uh, three of you can uh, pick up is emily uh, one of the participants is asking can you expound on local culture uh, of hierarchy, which is also biblical. How does the play out in arena? Uh, let me take up uh, Dr. Shantanu's question. Uh, the only country which I believe strongly uh, uh, objected to Christians using the word Allah is Malaysia. Indonesia, which is the world's largest Muslim country, Christians still use the word Allah. In Egypt, Christians use the word Allah uh, because Arabic-speaking Christians existed. Yes, Palestinians use the word Allah. And of course, oh, Palestinians object. Oh, that's a pity. But um, Christianity existed in Arab-speaking countries before Islam came into existence. So the word used by Arabic-speaking Christians for God has always been Allah. And uh, therefore, I think that's a, an objection, very unfortunate, but uh, it does not really have a foundation. And Sister Emily's question, I'll only make a passing comment that God spoke to his people and told them they are kings and queens and prophets, uh, priests and priestesses, uh, royal priesthood. In Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, before 
he separated the tribe of Levi for tabernacle work and the family of Aaron for priestly work. So you noticed that the hierarchy that you see was a functional hierarchy and not an ontological hierarchy. Uh, in God's sight, people are all equal. Only in terms of function, some people were set at a certain position. And of course, Jesus uh, turned everything right side up, if I may say that. Uh, 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 thank you, Uncle. I think yeah. it's right to say this is a functional hierarchy. Yeah, if I might uh, just add to something. Yeah. Again, uh, this issue of hierarchy that comes in needs to be addressed in terms of what Paul wrote in Galatians. He says, there is in Christ, uh, you know, neither Jew nor Greek, you know, barbarian nor free, Scythian or whatever, nor male nor female. Now, if you look at the culture of the day, those were all divisive distinctions that were perpetuated in the culture of its day. You know, slave and free, you know, believer, you know, Jew and Gentile, you know, male and female were all very categorically divisive elements. And I think what Paul is saying is that the scriptures, you know, our, our Lord's teaching and his way of life and what he did on the cross and his resurrection was breaking down those walls of enmity and animosity and distinctiveness that gave false sense of who you are. And I think LT rightly uh, um, puts it well, you know, he says, look, uh, you know, ontological versus positional, you know, nice, good, big words, but which really go to the heart of it saying is that, yes, we can have the, the you know, distinctions, right? But that it does never remove from the fact that we all created, we all God's children, you know, heirs uh, and, and fellow uh, sons and daughters of the king, as it were, uh, imbued with that sense of value as children and, and, and coming into the presence of the father, having the privilege to call God Abba, you know, in the sense of the most endearing of terms, all of those privileges are to be celebrated in, in, in our experience, right? And we forget that the early church became so powerful only because it was an indictment of its culture, which saying is that in our congregation, in when we get together, we do not make these false distinctions between male and female, you know, Jew and Greek and slave and free. These things don't matter in our congregation. And when those began to seep back in, Paul had to take the church, uh, you know, the Corinthian church to task. He says, this is inappropriate when you celebrate the Eucharist, which is a celebration of our equality before God. All right. So I think we need to get back to those things where we challenge our own practices and perceptions and language and things that we have, which have taken away the sense of equality. As LT, again, I want to highlight this, you know, ontological, the sense that, yes, you know, we are all created equal. Yes, we, we, you know, God creates us. And thank God that we are different, right? Male, female. And, uh, you know, we have positions and leadership and all of those types of things are intended. Uh, God in his own personality is triune, but never does anyone claim that any one person of the Trinity, although different, is unequal. And I think that ought to be the paradigm that we begin to use uh, to begin to understand this notion of hierarchy. Thank you. Uh, uh, I need to go to Mr. Rao. Uh, Mr. Rao, there are two questions which uh, our uh, participants are asking. And one question is that. Uh, the primary creed of early Christianity grew out of Latin or Greek uh, philosophies of those times. Are there a Christian creed in the Hindu or Buddhist uh, philosophies? Mr. Rao. 
So when we Sorry, say vocabulary, yeah. they, the question also, I think probably if I uh, try to play a little more in this conf with confusions, creating confusion, is this a, the question is also saying why you, uh, 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 it's a responsibility is yours to create a, a creed in, in, in your own language and culture. I would like to, you know, the, the, as I say, the shoe is on the other foot now. If you, if anyone who is familiar with uh, the uh, Bible translations in the vernacular in India, I pick uh, Tamil uh, because not that I can read it very well, but it's a fantastic book by uh, by the Tamil uh, Bible by Hepzibah Israel, uh, who is in Edinburgh. The controversy around, you know, the choice of vocabulary. Now we say, oh, we should have the, be given the right to use uh, the Hindu devotional vocabulary. But at that point of time, the whole argument was around how can we preserve the sanctity of the Bible and not become, become contaminated with the Hindu vocabulary, Hindu bhakti vocabulary. I think I would really ask, you know, the participants here to spend time reading with the history of Christianity in India. Okay, now, I mean, this is really inversion. You know, now we say, oh, we need to be given. But that was not the case. The, the platter, it was, it was an open invitation to use. And so to such an extent, Tamil Bible has become, is unreadable by Hindu. You give a Hindu a Tamil Bible, he can't read because the terminology is alien to him or her. So I would ask, you know, look at the history to say what happened. So it is not asking, you know, the Hindus and say, okay, why are we not allowed to use or ask for permission? Look what you made, number one. Okay, that, that's my take on vocabulary is, I, I don't know about the Hindi Bible, maybe people who know can comment on it. Tamil for sure, you know, was, and same with Telugu, my mother tongue, you know, I can't read that. It doesn't make any sense to me because somebody needs to translate it to me into real Telugu that I can follow. Yeah. Uncle, since you mentioned about the, the functional hierarchy, uh -huh. You uh, in the last one you mentioned the fun, uh, the hierarchy was uh, functional, and you and Mr. Rajan both. The question is in India, caste is also a sense of functional hierarchy. How how would you address as a good point? Yes, nobody else will ask a question like that. So <laughs> let me say this. You know. I don't, you know, frankly speaking, you can disagree with me, doctor, and Mr. Rajan can disagree with me. I don't object to caste identity at all. I only object to caste discrimination. The problem of functional hierarchy in the Bible also resulted in that. And even in the Old Testament, it began to be dismantled. When David enters the temple or tabernacle and eats the bread, which was meant only for the priests to eat. And Jesus quotes from that in Matthew chapter 12. So you notice that functional hierarchy can be misused, which is what the Pharisees were doing, which Jesus stood against. Similarly, I would surely not be totally against a caste identity, but caste discrimination is what it is. Uh, of course, Shantanu says that Gandhiji had a similar view that I just now mentioned. But I don't know whether Gandhiji, uh, probably that's where Gandhiji and Ambedkar disagreed. Because Ambedkar was for the uh, total elimination of caste. Uh, but I mean, that we are entering to a very interesting area. But uh, I want to affirm what uh, Dr. Rao mentioned. Uh, 
about the language of the Tamil Bible. And when it was revised once to more speak, spoken Tamil, people, Christian people rejected it because they were reduced to this, like King James Version, <laughs> the only inspired translation. I mean, ridiculous. Uh, so we have got idols, you see, even translations can become idols. If I could respond uh, Satya to uh, Please, yeah. what I uh, said on this caste issue, you know, it's interesting. Um, back here in the U.S., uh, as you know, there's this whole problem of racism that has come up as to the front, right? Uh, and in a, in a way, it uh, you know has some elements of what we would normally call casteism. And I think the point that I want to raise is that yes, we use uh, you know these classifications of Brahmin and uh, you know untouchable and all of this good stuff. I think what happens is that when, if we want to redeem it, we have to basically say when you use these terms, it cannot be hurtful because of its historical baggage. All right, there are some terms which are so laden because of the centuries of accretion of things that you must ask yourself, is it necessary to continue to, to, to try and change it, right? Or is, is it a time when we really have to sort of do away with it? Why? Because the whole notion of these terms, it seemed to imbue a person with a status, which was, in my mind, not that. I mean, we take away the essential worthiness of a person by putting them into a label, which somehow takes away the notion that we are created in God's image, you know, an untouchable, my God, wow, what does that mean? So I think that is something that when we talk about the redemption of language, then we must ask at how, how far do we need to go? And is there a point in which it has become so, uh, you know, because of usage and understanding, what do we need to do? I think that's one thing that we have to do with regard to caste. And, and I begin to start seeing it, as I said, in racism here in the US, this language that uh, has crept in and asking ourselves, what do we need to do because of the systemic nature where we have what we call uh, inherent biases that sometimes we are not even aware of as a result of the accretion of centuries worth of what has transpired in our culture. I think that's one thing uh, just uh, in the context of, uh, of, uh, of caste uh, within the uh, you know, construct that we are dealing with. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Rao, uh, uh, so on the, on the caste and jati, I mean, I think there is a nuance there on caste and jati, you know, and of course, caste is a Portuguese word. It's not, a, you can never find it in an Indian, uh, you know, it's, it's not an Indian word, and casta. So, uh, you know, it, it complicates things how you understand. Jati is very much uh, a very you know, Indian way of understanding and uh, uh, as LT said, you know, the the uh, there are a lot of good things about right in the sense that you know it's a endogamous in in a way. So, and you know the endogamous uh, nature of uh, you know what these castes are about marrying within uh, within the same jati and you know within uh, so that, that familiarity it's all it's all very nice because what what is wrong with that? But then when it becomes a system, you know, where you start enforcing and then evils come like any other institution. When when you make it a system, then you always uh, you know un unleash evil. Which I think definitely, as a follower of Muktinath, one should be standing up. Now, I would ask, okay, the Hindus, uh, you know, would definitely look around and say, okay, show me a a, a community that is, uh, you know, has transcended caste. We know the caste in Indian church. I come from Chennai. I know about, uh, you know, Bellalar churches, Nadar churches, and go to Andhra, which is my homeland. You have Reddy Christian, Kamma Christian, Mary. I would rarely the Hindus would turn around and ask you talk about caste, but you're not able to get rid of it in the church. 
No, yeah, I'm saying that, you know, we got to show the model to people before we tell the Hindus. I'm sorry, I think my line probably is bad. Yeah, yeah. You were, how much I'm coming you're to. You're making a very important point, I think, think we were missing. Point, I think we were missing. Uh, you know, uh, uh, to, for Rakesh's question, I want to read uh, two verses from Revelation 21, uh, verse 24. The nations, nations means ethnic group, uh, will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into the new Jerusalem. Verse 25, no day will it, uh, sorry, verse 26, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Uh, I believe that in some sense, uh, the beauty of uh, the cultures of all over the world, all ethnic groups, big and small, will be refined and brought into the new creation. And I think verse 27 is probably the best, which gives you a kind of a filter. Three things will not be part of it. What is uh, false, what is shameful, and what is deceitful. That is why I made that statement at the outset, that the object of worship sanctifies the method of worship, the avenue of worship. And not that in this life, before Jesus comes again, we'll get an ideal terminology, Greek, Latin, Sanskrit, Tamil, Telugu, whatever it is. You will always have a problem because a language cannot identically, univocally express reality. We can only approximate. But within that, uh, efforts have to be taken. And that's where I totally agree with Dr. Rao. Uh, this one area that's what we see that's when we talk of the uh, good news or talk of the uh, uh, the Muktinath. Uh, Satya, again, uh, if I might, uh, you know, LT talked about Revelation. I think it's important if you look at the fifth chapter of Revelation. All right. Uh, it's an interesting section there. Uh, and it uh, talks about the fact that around this throne of God is... Uh, people from every language, tribe, ethnicity, group, and uh, they're all praising God. And it doesn't say what language they are using, right? Or what type of culture they're, you know, they're saying is that there is a totality of experience, right? And it's interesting. He says that they're all going to be part of his kingdom, right? And I think one of the things that I just want to emphasize is that when our Lord came to the earth, you know, the Jews were looking for political uh, liberation. And you know what God, our Lord was trying to say is that, look, your problem is not Caesar. Your problem is the fact that unless evil and the uh, and the satanic influences that uh, seep into every aspect of our culture and of our experience and of our life on earth, unless that is overcome, there is no hope of redemption to redeem anything. And I think that is the fundamental aspect sort of that we have to look at and saying is that this transforming, and I think uh, Madhu Misurao raised this, right? And it's, uh, again... An interesting aspect, the word transformation, uh, you know, is uh, from the underlying Greek. And by the way, when John talks about the first chapter, when he used the word logos, he is incorporating, lo you know, he's redeemed the Greek language, by the way. Yeah, please. Now back to this issue of transformation, right? Uh, transformation is uh, that word, the underlying Greek word is metamorphosis, only used twice in the scriptures. One of the gospel of Luke, when he describes the change that took place in our Lord's uh, uh, figure when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And again, the other one in Romans 8, when Paul talks about being living sacrifices and being transformed. Again, the word metamorphosis. Again, the three aspects. It is again a compound word. This is an aspect where Paul is in a sense uh, putting together terminology taken from culture. Meta, everything. Morphe, your being. 
Ousios, your essence. Ousios is a term that came from Greek philosophical constructs. And you had to take this, redeem it, go to the uh, formulation of the creeds. When you look at the Nicene Creed, you'll notice that in the original construct, talks about the essence, essence, ousios, to define what you had to do to fight a heresy which said our God, our Lord, was less than the perfect God. He was somehow uh, kind of a, a junior God in a sense, right? Fighting that heresy had to take terminology that was well understood, used, redeemed, for the purpose of incorporating it into what we call the Nicene Creed. I said, I just sort of pass this in terms of saying is that what we need to do and what we can and do and need to do and things that perhaps we may not have a whole lot of options in terms of doing. Yeah. Uh, in yeah. that, I want to say something about Rakesh's point. While there is a comment as Hindu disciple or Christian disciple, why we can't leave that. But the point, Rakesh, is that this is part of incarnation. In uh, Romans 15, Paul says Jesus became a, a servant of the Jews so that the Gentiles can be redeemed. So uh, to the community to which God is calling you, you have to identify with that community. So it is not that, see, otherwise it will all be uh, one uh, tasteless, odorless like oxygen, you know. Uh, I think the new creation is to, going to be multicolored, multifaceted, multilingual, without necessarily the gifts of tongues and interpretation, we'll be able to understand one another. Just think of that. I think we need to have Revelation 21, 22 as the motivation for whatever we are doing now. We are not doing this just to get people to follow Jesus. We are doing this with a much bigger project in view. What is God's ultimate plan? To have people from every language, tribe, and nation, as uh, Brother Rajan so rightly mentioned. So I think that is the reason. It is not that we are putting labels. We are born with labels. We are born into a culture. We are born into a language. We don't leave those things. We are bringing them to the feet of Jesus to redeem cultures, redeem languages. Can I respond to Rakesh now? Because I've, I've read yeah. that and I think... You read that. Yeah, just, yeah. Right? If you can quickly, uh, yeah. I think it's a very, very good question. And thanks, yeah. Rakesh, for asking that because it, it, it really helps a lot of, you know, clarify things. One... Hindu disciple and a Christian disciple. I think uh, what the way I understand the word, and then you said it's a religion. First, Hindu, when I say it is not religion, because there is a, you, you may all know, there is no word in, in Hindu vocabulary for religion. You know, that's a word that came from Orientalists and Europeans. The only, you can, and religion is not dharma. If somebody says, oh, but dharma is what, we all knew in, in the Hindu religious uh, traditions and vocabulary, and religion is not dharma, you know, so our dharma is not religion. So for those who have, I mean, enough ink has been spent on that one. Now, so it's not a religion, that sh why should we consider religion while serving? So Hindu here is not religion. It's basically, if I can put it very simply, it is uh, a followers, you know, the, the socio-cultural tradition, the family tradition you fall into. That's it. You know, it's not a, a denomination or, or, or any sect that you follow. It's, it's when I say I'm a Hindu disciple, it is basically the, the social-cultural milieu in which I come from. Whereas Christianity, whether you can take any, you know, when we, with, with uh, the way that it's been characterized, typically considered Semitic religions, you know, the Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, kind of, you know, people agree, yeah, they, they form a system and they have essences and so on. And, uh, and and in addition to that, in the Indian context, it has also become a community. So it is both a religion and a community. 
So I think there, it is basically the Hindu disciple of Christian is comparing apples and oranges here because they, they both don't mean one and the same. Now, on the last point, I think LT is a pioneer in this in terms of how he talked even now and, and, and he's been taught is how can we not serve Christ without tradition? And I think I'm remembering Muktinath's prayer. He says, I'm not telling you to take them out of the world. Okay, I want you to keep them in the world. So if I have to follow him with all those three categories, it looks like I cannot be in the world. But then LT nicely reminded in Revelation, it seems you can't escape this even when you get to you know be with be with them. My last question to three of you, and starting with Mr. Rajan Matthew, uh, the certain things that if you are given chance again to live, what are the things that you will leave and pick new things? so that you can actually uh, 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 live uh, of the Bhakta of uh, Muktinath in the arena, effectively, I mean, you've been there, but uh, certain things that you would like to relive. Uh, thank you, Satya. Again, you know, um, they say very often that um, um, you always have perfect vision in hindsight, right? Hindsight always has 20-20 vision, so that's the question you're asking. Uh, again, uh, let me just that's sort right. of... Let me caveat this thing, right? You are, uh, in a sense, your question says, knowing what I do know now, what would I have done then, right? <laughs> that is a difficult question because obviously then I didn't have all of the facts that I have now, right? <laughs> so kind of reverse engineering this process <laughs> is in itself going to be problematic. That, that, could, that could help us actually our generation not to do the... The younger people, yeah. yeah. Yes, that's that's precisely at least for us, for me. <laughs> so, so this is what what uh, the proverbs say. You know, please uh, respect the gray hair. You know, this is uh, what we we learned this thing. You know, and I think one of the things that uh, I've learned, uh, you know, very often uh, I see our generation and successive generations dealing with this whole issue of what is the will of God. You know, and sometimes I think uh, we get so paralyzed that we become uh, so taken up with the personal dimensions of the faith that everything is looked at from the personal perspective. And of course, you can't, I mean, uh, ignore the fact that everything's experienced through you. But I think one of the things that I would have liked better to do is sort of understand how do I function more in terms of an integrated and I think uh, both uh, LT and uh, Brother Rao said, you know, uh, could I have been a better son? You know, could I have been a better father? Could I have been a better church person? Could I have been a better student? Uh, because one of the things that I've learned is that uh, as Christians, we don't give enough emphasis to excellence. You know, you look like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego taken to the Babylon in a foreign culture, but yet we're able to rise to the top only because of their commitment to excellence. Their excellence. Or as Christians, right, sometimes we skirt around and we don't have that passion for excellence. And uh, be it in academics, be it in professional careers, be it in the quality of our life, be it in the interactions with our family, uh, be it uh, in the roles that uh, LT and uh, Mr. Rao talked about, whatever we are put, understanding that context and saying, how do I understand God's uh, leading to be his true representative, the image of God, right? And I think that earlier on, the, you know, I think my life was too compartmentalized and I only learned much later to try and put the pieces together and say, we need a holistic witness. Thank you, sir, very much. I think you said very well. And uh, uh, Mr. Rao, coming to you. 
what would you suggest uh, to people well, like us and you other people those who are listening what to do be to be a better uh, to be a more effective or a true bhakt of muktinath deshwa yeah i will say that uh, you know i mean there's often you know one of the person senior persons in our mandali says a hostile home is better than a suspecting neighbor so i, I my thing would be live i mean give, i mean stay in the station that uh, you know of life that bhagwan has given remain where you are you know uh, as and and follow muktinath and uh, you know nothing can replace your family or community they are the ones who will be with you okay and uh, stay where you are and uh, you know follow follow him don't be torn apart by guilt or anything and recognize that you know your family is a god's gift and and uh, while you want to you know definitely uh, you know be enriched by the spiritual community of bhaktas uh, i would say that uh, you know that is a great gift god has given it i typically i mean i did not realize that in, in the first decade of my life of my life as a as a follower didn't value it that much you know but i think uh, that's what i, I i would say that in the later two decades of of mine has been you know experiencing and you know realizing the value of that that's what i would say yeah thank you mr rao thank you mr rao i'm coming to uncle lt uh, that's if let me make a my concluding statement yo know, i just one more thing that you, i need to add my uh, so so you, you you get more time now yeah uncle if you you are asked some of the things that you would learn are unlearned whether the uh, the about arena bhakti vocabulary expressions and all what you would that's what, what you encourage us to do i am going to say that with my own peculiar brand of uh, twisted sense of humor i will read the bible without underlining it so the first chapter that i would be reading is genesis chapter 10 where all the descendants of noah are mentioned why why i would say if god is not interested in all the ethnic races of his creation why should that chapter why do we go straight to matthew 28 verses 18 to 20 we should start with genesis chapter 10 and this whole issue what uh, rajan rightly mentioned personalizing and privatizing our faith i mean i come to faith in christ as a first step we have made that the only step all our sermons as nt right puts it is good advice not good news so uh, i think we need to rise above that the good news is god is interested in every dimension of creation i think that is what i would relearn which is now i am rapidly unlearning and i am trying to communicate to as many people as possible which definitely includes excellence in fact i'm going to be on a zoom call on work job or vocation considering your work as a calling from god and don't use that word calling only for so called full time christian work i think that is another horrible thing we have fallen into thank you uh, this been a really really enriching and lots of comments and points and questions have come what we have learned today from these three uh, individual and from all of you through your questions and comments your god was not in sleep when he he birthed you with certain family community and parents he was awesome sovereign lord at that point in time and god was not in sleep when he bumped on you walking while walking to tell that you 
you need to become my disciple. That was also part of his sovereign plan. He, we, we, we read that he, even before the foundation of the earth, he knew me and knew us. So he knew where we are going to be, what arena he is going to create for us and be able to put, put us. What is what we have learned today from these three uh, individuals and all of you that your family, your community, and the work that you do, everything put together is your arena. And as a bhakta of Muktinath, the Yeshua, you have a, on a platter these arena to live and be effective as Ravidas, uh, Raidas, or Talmakas, or Meera, or uh, uh, Narayan Bhavan Tilak, or Paul, or, or other, uh, uh, those who have laid their life in those arena, influencing, transforming the world. Thank you all, Mr. Rajan, joining us early morning from your sleep. Uh, thank you, LT, Uncle LT, and Mr. Rao. Thank you so much for enriching us and influencing us. Thank you. Good night, and have a wonderful time.